How's everyone doing tonight? I'm here with Father James, and I'm your host, Christian Wagner, and I'm the militant Thomist. So, Father James, we're going to be talking a little bit about Anglican history tonight, so it could get a bit spicy. So give us a little bit yeah. of background detail. Tell us uh, the stuff you do and such. Well, I run the YouTube channel called Barely Protestant, and uh, just for clarification, that is not me sort of saying that I am... Uh, I reject any sort of uh, understanding of classical Protestantism. It actually just came from a joke with me and my Eastern Orthodox friends. The nickname for me was barely Protestant because I was, well, classically Protestant. I was okay with iconography. I was very strong in my sacramental, and still am, you know, in my sacramental theology and all that sort of stuff. So I was not your typical evangelical. So the nickname was barely Protestant because I kept saying I am Protestant. So, uh, but I didn't expect it to become a video, a, a channel, a YouTube channel. So anyway. Yeah, you can sort of get uh, stuck with a label. I was actually thinking yeah. of um, keeping Apologia Anglicana when I converted and just being like, I'm ordinary, so it kind of counts. But I know you would probably <laughs> be my number one enemy if I would have did that. Oh, so, totally. <laughs> yeah. So have you been, um, have you always been Anglican? Did you grow up Anglican? Um, what's your ecclesiastical I, I actually... history? Yeah, I actually grew up independent fundamental Baptist. And for those uh, in that world, uh, the sort of stream of fundamentalism I uh, I was within was the sort of John R. Rice, Sword of the Lord, uh, mixed with a little bit of Pensacola Christian College, like sort of those two streams put together, which it's, uh, it's fascinating how I know the uh, fundamentalist Baptist streams about as well as I know Anglican streams. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I kind of grew up in an IFB uh, mm -hmm. church. And it was weird because they were more of like a MacArthurite IFB stream. It was like independent fundamentalist Baptist, but dispensationalist yeah. and reformed. Well, not actually reformed, but yeah, we would reformed. we would consider him a bit too liberal. Really? What's so? Yes. <laughs> what's liberal about John MacArthur? Um, he wasn't a King James onlyist, or isn't? Oh, yeah, yeah all those liberal so, new Bible translations. Yeah. Especially the NIV, which I still hate the NIV with passion. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not an NIV fan, and I actually like the um, the King James version. And I'm sure you uh, oh, you're yeah. 1928 onlyist, right? Oh, totally. Yes. It, you know, I the joke, the common joke, which people have probably heard me say a million times, is that you know the Book of Common Prayer is not uh, necessarily inspired, but God did sneeze in its general direction. So <laughs> it's not God breathed, but God sneezed. No, but yeah, the 28, uh, I, I love the 28 and you're probably going to be a little bit surprised by this, but I actually don't mind the 2019. Um, I actually oh. celebrated, I celebrated with the 2019, uh, this past Sunday because I was, uh, doing pulpit supply for another uh, Anglican church in the ACNA. And so um, so I had to use I had to use the a renewed ancient right, which I'm not the biggest fan of. Uh, yeah. So not the Anglican standard text, but like honestly, the 2019's two rights are there, there are so many like movable rubrics within it that you can make them almost interchangeable. You know, so it's like, yeah, it, it, it's kind of weird. But anyway, yeah. uh, I I celebrated at Orientum too. I oh, insist upon really? that every time I every time I go there, I insist upon celebrating at Orientum. Well, I ask first, and they say yes. <laughs> Yeah, so my background's actually for for those who don't know is um I was in the ACNA and we we used the 2019 and I wasn't too much of a fan because I mean I was an Anglo papalist yeah. so I would uh, be a bit rebellious and then in my 
private devotions would use the Anglican breviary and the monastic diurnal, and then eventually the Anglican office book when it came out. But um, since I've kind of been getting comfortable in the uh, ordinary chair of St. Peter, I've, I've, uh, I, I really do like the, um, the mass that they have, the, what I can't, I think they call it divine worship missile. I, I, it's not, um, it's not too bad. I mean, it's kind of like the missile masses that I was used to when we would have weekday mass, mm-hmm. but um, I'm, I'm not too much fan of the, uh, the offices that that's kind of a, a bit of a setback for me. I like the Anglican office book better if I'm going to mm-hmm. go for that, but I mean, it's not terrible, but anyways, besides that fact, may I uh, add some s- stuff to that? May I? Yeah, go, go ahead. Oh yeah. So um, I am fine with the American missile. Uh, I, although, I mean, I, I like the American missile as long as I'm holding to it like pretty strictly, not exclusively, but like strongly within the 28 tradition. Mm. Um, I will say that when it comes to a straight, strict, you know, strictly the prayer book tradition itself, the 2019 is the most pro Anglo Catholic one by far, I would say. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. When you, uh, especially looking at the fact that it has a Maundy Thursday service and, and yeah. other, other things like that. So this is very niche Anglican discussion. So, um, I'm bringing you on today where we're going to have a little bit of a chatter about Anglican history. And um, from from my background, I mean, I I was a bit inculcated with uh, with some of the continuum. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not I wasn't in the continuum, but my priest was a continuum priest uh, before he came into the ACNA. So uh I, I do have a bit of knowledge and I, I know the uh, the timeline they'll give about Anglican history. So I'm really interested how you're going to uh, to go about it. So so started off uh, for us in the beginning. I'm assuming you're going to talk about pre-Gregorian um, times. So go ahead. Well, of, cur- of course, we all know that um, St. Joseph of Arimathea was, you know, he brought Jesus to uh, England when he was 29 prayer years book. Old. I mean, the 2019 yeah. <laughs> prayer book says that <laughs> no but uh, so what I want to do is set up sort of some of the sort of different categories of, of understandings of Anglicanism within church history um, also I think I made a mistake I think the 1549 is more Anglo-Catholic than the 2019 I should have said that. yes yes yeah yeah um, so there are sort of two extremes I want to kind of point out uh, the first one uh, will be the uh, Roman extreme, which is sort of like Henry VIII uh, started his own church because he wanted to get jiggy with, uh, uh, oh, wow, Catherine. No, wait, wait, wait which one's the first no, no, wife? No, no. So Catherine, no, Catherine, Catherine of and Aragon then was, yeah. was the yeah. first wife. No, and that's then right, left, yeah. her, left them for Jane, something like that. No, no, it's not Jane. She's the third. Oh, gosh. Oh, now you're going to make me look it up. I don't remember all. I didn't memorize all of his wives. I'm sorry. I would put on the wife song, but uh, as the other Paul knows, we got we got taken off. Anne. Mm-hmm. Anne. Anne, there you go. Thank yeah. you, John Fisher 2.0, even though you were killed by uh, killed by our boy, Henry VIII. Yeah. So Anne Boleyn. And then, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Yes, I'm so sorry. Now, now my credentials are completely lost because I don't have memorized memorized the order of his wives. Anyway, so there's the first extreme where it's sort of like this idea that uh, like Protestants were basically self-consciously thinking we are going to establish a new church, you know, 
And so like, you know, forget all of the history prior to uh, 1534. We're just starting a new thing. You know, God is doing a new thing. Um, that might be the Episcopal Church's position, but that's not the historic <laughs> Anglican position. And, and that is like, at least with like, when it comes to layman apologetics, I guess you could say, uh, with Roman Catholics, like that tends to be the sort of the idea. Yeah. Um, so that's why you'll see those memes about like, when was your church started? And it'll say like Anglican church, Henry VIII, 1534, you know, and sort of that sort and of like, it's like Catholic church, 33 AD, <laughs> Jesus Christ, boom, roasted. And of course it'll say 33 AD rather than AD 33, because, you know, anyway, that's a pet peeve of mine. Um, so there's that extreme. Then there's the other extreme uh, that you'll get from some sort of Anglo-Catholics, some forms of Anglo-Catholics, uh, which will be sort of like the the pure Celtic Christianity type thing, where like there was this yeah. pure Church of Englandism, and uh, then the Synod of Whitby happened, and yeah. uh, then from the Synod of Whitby, well, we were kind of you know, fighting against that and all that. And then, uh, you know, these two different churches utterly were just sort of fighting against each other. And then you've got William uh, the Conqueror and just sort of sweeps over and takes everything over. And, you know, then, you know, Henry VIII recovered all of that and everything. And obviously that one is not true either. Um, honestly, I would say, I don't even want to say it's in the middle because I think both are just so weird that it, it's just, it just reject both of them, I would say. Um, I would say this, historically, we recognize ourselves within the church Catholic. The question is, what does the definition, what, what is the definition of Catholicity? Yeah. Has it always been historically understood as a complete and total submission to the Pope, sort of, you know, a la Unum Sanctum, Vatican One, etc. Yeah. And that is where the the differences will be. So it's not like we're saying that we are some sort of you know, secluded part that was never under the papacy and never recognized uh, papal um, primacy or anything like that until, uh, you know, we were forced to by the evil papists and all that. Um, it's just recognizing that uh, I would say that the uh, first and immediate, and I think you would agree with this, the immediate uh, authority of the church is um, at the diocesan level, the bishop. Yes. So yes. you have bishops going all over and, you know, spreading the church and everything. And so the earliest ones, we we would uh, document them, the earliest Christians in England, as far as at least, I want to say about uh, solidly third century, but I think you can go much mm -hmm. further than that. You know, yeah, you have like first or council, second century. The Council of Nicaea will talk about English bishops, mm -hmm. and Tertullian will even talk about English bishops, or at least Christianity. St. Alban. And, yeah. yeah St. So Alban. Yeah. So with with just a, just a brief comment, then I'll mm -hmm. let you continue, but... I do think it's a bit silly when you have this um, very uh, rigid view from Roman Catholics, usually uh, lay Roman Catholics or those who aren't too educated in church history, where they'll just say, like, from the very beginning, there was this very clear and distinct understanding of submission to the Roman pontiff. And you're having these random Christians in uh, in Asia and in Britain, well, Eastern, well, Far East Asia and in mm -hmm. Britain and in Northern Europe, and they're they're understanding that they just go straight to the Pope for all of their all their questions and stuff. Well, obviously, it's a bit of a development over time, and you would say it's a corruption. I would say it's a valid development, where they're they're coming to this further realization as communication lines are open, and these uh, these questions come to fore when there's disagreements. But uh, broadly speaking, uh, practically, your local bishop is going to be your authority. And I'm sure that's yeah. where you're coming from, mm -hmm. is that there's these local bishops in England, and they mm -hmm. had the authority to 
put themselves under mm-hmm. the Roman pontiff, and they yeah. had the authorities if they they had the authority if they wanted to to make that break. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and uh, just to give a sort of uh, sort of idea of what my understanding of the uh, patristics in the early church are, uh, I, I wouldn't deny any sort of papal primacy. I mean, there are certain forms I would deny, obviously, mm-hmm. but I, I I think it's um, you know, very evident that there is a papal primacy uh, where the Bishop of Rome is seen as um, a, a, you know, you would still use the term first among equals, I would uh, imagine, or no? Yes, yes. Okay. I, I'm comfortable uh, with that language. Okay. So we would, I would be fine with that, saying that he is a first among equals. Obviously, we have a very different understanding, though, of how that works out then. Um, but uh, I would say that if you look at, for instance, St. Irenaeus, when he's dealing with the uh, court decimal controversy and such, that we see this understanding that um, the apostolic see, the, you know, the, the, the bishop of Rome, is incredibly important that we need to look to. Now, his argumentation is very different from how a Roman Catholic would argue it today. You would agree yes. with that, right? Yes. Okay. It's so, based on the fact that Peter and Paul were martyred there, not necessarily exactly. the chair of St. Peter. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it, because martyrdom was a very big thing in the early church, especially you know, uh, you know, leading up to the Council of Nicaea and obviously afterwards and everything. I mean, it's all throughout the church history. But there's a special emphasis on martyrdom. Uh, if you look at Saint Ignatius, Saint Irenaeus, etc. Um, so we have that happening, um, and it's you know two of the biggest uh, apostles. It is Saint Peter and Saint Paul. So that sort of double apostolic line, and that's how he's arguing with the uh, Gnostics, etc. So, however, with all of that being understood, like there's that that singular bishop of Rome who is, you know, the, the top dog in in a sense, uh, as a first among equals, but still like the chief justice basically for the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, is how I would understand it. But then above that, though, I would say there is another level. And this is where we would disagree, I think, uh, where um, it is the consensus of the church. So, for instance, when Nestorius uh, is being accused by um, uh, St. Cyprian or Cyril, Cyril. sorry, yeah, St. Cyril, um, what does he do? You know, he he addresses, he asks the Pope and all that, and uh, the Pope is still saying no. And he goes, well, ecumenical council. (laughs) Yeah. So he appeals to the ecumenical council. The understanding seems to be that that would be above the Bishop of Rome. And, you know, there are other examples of that sort of thing as well. So we would look at a, um, a sort of more conciliar understanding of the church. Yeah. So, um, like I, I've, I'm very, I'm very comfortable with this language of the, uh, the consensus fide of the the consensus of the faithful. It's like John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman said, yeah, 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 yeah. Make your disgusting faces. <laughs> the voice, the voice of the church will be heard. The voice of the faithful will will be heard um, over time, and the the forces of darkness will not will not overcome them. And if you even reading uh, Saint Robert Bellarmine, the the way in which he's going to argue is the reason that an ecumenical council has authority is because the bishops of the ecumenical council are representative of the. Uh, of those dioceses in which they're coming from. So it is really, even though it's might be a gathering of three, 400 people, it's still the entire church coming together in persona Episcopoi, I guess, in, in the persons of the bishops. Mm. And then, and then you get, you get above coming from that, you get the, 
the metropolitans are representatives of their synods of bishops and then the patriarchs are representatives of the, the metropolitans and the roman pontiffs are representative of the of the patriarchs and i think that's a bit of a more helpful way of thinking about it and i think um in recent years uh rome is being a little bit more friendly to ideas of a conciliarist model oh, within the, within the scope at least of um of previous teaching, as you said, in Unum Sanctum and then in uh, Vatican I. Yeah. And obviously, I I, I don't think I could uh, ever accept Unum Sanctum or uh, Vatican I at all in the least. I, I just think that it's uh, – actually, I honestly find it hard to reconcile Vatican I with Vatican II, but that is for another conversation at another time. Yeah. Uh, but yes, no. Um, like Rome, I think ultimately at the end of the day – uh, in order for uh, on, on their side, I think in order for uh, full recommunion amongst the major branches of the church to happen, Vatican one and uh, well, I mean, to a lesser extent, Unum Sancta, but like definitely Vatican one, because that's like even higher, I would say, uh, would have to be dealt with like that has to be readdressed in some way. Yeah, there there has been um, recent discussions among mm -hmm. Roman canonists, at least mm -hmm. on 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 tiered layers of authority among the ecumenical councils yeah. so if you look at the first seven where the east and the west are together in its yeah. truest and proper sense that is an ecumenical council yeah and then for eight through what is it 23 now 22 i think i think it's 22 i think it's 22 yeah yeah eight through 22 those are more properly called uh, general councils because i've seen the, that the yeah. general council the general gathering of the western church and mm -hmm. Uh, when we're binding the Eastern Orthodox, because we're because since the other dirty historical matters, we we're not going to include the Anglican Church in in that counting. Yeah, yeah. When it when it comes to the when it comes to the East, how we're going to regard them? We're going to hold them to the the doctrine of the first millennium, and then the first seven ecumenical councils, and the way in which they relate to uh, eight through twenty two is a bit more awkward. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I, I love Anglicanism is that so one of the things I think is important uh, to note is that we all agree that there is major schism within the church today. Right. Mm -hmm. OK. For me, if there is major schism within the church, the idea of one branch of that and obviously you would understand this differently, but, you know, uh, the idea of one branch of that deciding to then go basically, quote, go it alone. Um, actually no air quotes, just go it alone and sort of develop theology beyond that, I think only further deepens the wound of schism. And that's one of the issues that I, major issues that I have with Rome. And that's actually, it's been interesting that I get that as an argument for joining Rome is that they keep developing doctrine. I go, no, you keep developing, developing doctrine in ways that further divide the church. Like that's not helpful. That is would, very much would not you helpful. Think, would you think it would be a problem if we were, for example, to to hold to these more recent uh, canonical uh, theories that are being brought up and say that we're developing doctrine in, in the Latin church, but we're developing doctrine and then binding them on Latin Christians. But Greek Christians are only bound to, uh, to those in which we have common agreement. I am certainly fine with not being bound to, uh, papal claims about uh unique dogmas held by rome so yes <laughs> would you would you say that you were you were bound to the uh the pre-tridentine medieval councils since the english bishops were present there 
I, I don't think that we can look at, so I, I do believe that councils can err and definitely general councils after the seven ecumenical, I would have to say definitely can err. Um, so I don't, uh, I, at the end of the day, there are, um, my, like my ultimate authority on earth is my bishop. And so mm -hmm. I, I follow what he says. Um, like when I talk about human authority and then also we have scripture. So I I'm supposed to also be going along with, uh, the consistency of scripture and all that. So like, those are my, my guide rails, I guess you could say. So how much, how much would you say, uh, like, let's say the, all the bishops of the REC and, mm -hmm. uh, the, or the college of bishops of the ACNA or, or such, they all meet together and then make certain declarations like they have done in the past. How much would you say that you were bound to them? I'm bound to them insofar as I'm bound to my bishop who holds to them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you would say so, that there's no divinely instituted uh, authority over your bishop, but they're human and canonical uh, modes of authority. What I would say is that, so being under my bishop as a priest, um, I am not to ever reject that authority unless I am forced to by reason of scripture or the faith. Like if my bishop were to suddenly reject, say, um, like the creeds, you know, uh, you know, particular elements of the creed. So for instance, like, you know, one baptism for the uh, remission of sins, then um, my problem is that I, if he is forcing me to hold to that position, then I cannot in good faith continue being under that bishop. So I would have to uh, uh, leave. Okay, so um, the so you would you would hold this in the sense of the classical Protestant reformers, in that the final authority in all matters of controversy is Holy Scripture. Of course, yes. so 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 therefore, what what the uh, your bishop is um, authoritative, not in an absolute sense, but only in a relative sense, insofar as oh, yeah. it does not I, contradict greater yeah. authorities. And I think you would have to agree with that too in, a, in an yes. abstract sense. You would just say that it could never happen with the, the papacy. Well, it, it would never happen in certain instances. Well, in, in, in matters of prudence yeah. and then in, yeah. in, in yeah, such yeah, and such. Yeah. Okay, so this is supposed to be about uh, <laughs> about Anglican history. So do you want to continue uh, talk about – you talked about what the Reformation wasn't. Do you want to talk about what the Reformation was? So the Reformation is – uh, you know, when we talk about Reformation, we're talking about a um, something that uh, Roman Catholics recognize within their own tradition, which is you see the Gregorian reforms, you would see Vatican II as considered a reform uh, within the church as well. I mean, I, I think it's impossible, I would say, to see it as anything else. Trent is definitely a reform uh, within the church. Uh, so you see reforms happening with the church. A Reformation is not something that happens outside the church. So whether or not we are in the church, which is obviously a, a question, you know, that we disagree on there um, it, to some capacity. Uh, the, the fact remains that we see, we self-identify, you know, we self-identify <laughs> as uh, people who are within the church Catholic, but who are getting rid of the excesses and the corruptions, just as Trent was getting rid of the excesses and the corruptions. Yeah, so, so this is this is kind of an idea of a, of a reformed Catholicity. That yes. we're take we're we're taking along what is what is true, what is good of the uh, the Catholic deposit that has been handed on by the medieval church, and then cleansing them from the corruptions 
that that came along with it in accordance with scripture and the holy fathers yes in agreement and um one of the issues that i would say is that um because of the Middle Ages and seeing major corruption within the hierarchy of the Church Catholic in the West, um, especially with the papacy, and we can all obviously go through all the you know Alexander the Sixth, the Borgias, and all that sort of stuff. Um, the point being that, like in theory, I'm not opposed to a uh, figurehead. We already talked about like papal uh, primacy. I'm fine with you know as, as an idea. Um, I don't think it's required by scripture, but I think it makes sense for there to be a first, you know, a, a, a person who is speaking for the church in that sense. Um, it, it's a prudential thing that I think is helpful, but it's not necessary. And I think one of the issues is that due to sort of the hardening of lines during the Reformation and after the Reformation, that that is just at this point not reconcilable. And, um, well, not not that it's not reconcilable, but it just can't be reconciled at, at this moment without severe changes in dogma. Um, in one or the other or both groups. So uh, obviously we start, we talk with, you know, Henry VIII and uh, yes, I'm not going to deny that, uh, you know, it, it, that there was a marital reason for his desire to uh, split with uh, the papacy, not with the church Catholic, but with papacy um, or, or not even split, uh, but to declare that they are not uh, the head of the church in England. Um, I do want to, point out, though, uh, in the slightest bit of defense of uh, Henry VIII, that I think he genuinely did believe that he was under the curse of God uh, with his um, marriage to, to Catherine, um, because he had something like seven children die with Catherine. And there's that passage in Leviticus that he's looking at that says, you know, don't marry your brother's wife. And if you do, uh, you'll be childless, you know. And he's seeing child after child after child after child die. And he's a trained theologian, so he knows about these things. So his thought is, well, you know, I did get a special dispensation for this marriage. Um, however, maybe maybe the papacy was wrong. Maybe that special dispensation was not should not have been allowed. So that was his appeal on a theological level. And uh, did you want to say something? Or? No, no, no. Uh, go yeah. ahead. I was just going right. to ask a different question. Okay, so... You know, looking at that, it's not like obviously I'm not saying he's you know pure as a driven snow. I mean, there are a variety of issues with with Henry VIII, but it's it's important to understand that we don't sort of like paint him into this one particular corner. It's a bit more nuanced. Like this is a man who actually does believe uh, in the Christian faith and is actually dealing with major theological issues and major issues of of ha has he committed a sin in doing so and all that sort of stuff. Um, However, another thing I want you to point out is that, you know, Henry, Henry VIII dies and his son, uh, Edward VI, uh, takes the throne. And Edward VI then appoints uh, uh, Lady Jane Grey to be his successor. Uh, but Parliament, of course, uh, you know, the, you've got uh, Mary Tudor who comes in and, and everything. Um, so Mary, Mary Tudor brings uh, England back under the power, the, the, the authority of Rome. And then after that, you've got Queen Elizabeth, uh, who brings it back into, uh, you know, out from under the authority of Rome. So whenever like polemics are happening against me as an Anglican, I, I want to emphasize the point that uh, like if you think our church started during the Reformation, you have to point to Queen Elizabeth, who is a much better figure, I would say, to look at than yeah. Henry VIII. I was I was going to ask. So uh, Henry VIII. um he he declared the um, with with the Council of the Bishops, 
and the Archbishop of Canterbury that they were not under the uh, strict authority of the papacy. So now you believe exactly what Henry VIII believed theologically, right? Oh, totally not. No. <laughs> okay, go go in a little bit more detail about that. Well, I mean, he's uh, he believes in the required celibacy of priests. He believes in transubstantiation. Um, he's still pretty much a Roman Catholic without a pope, basically. Okay, so um, another thing that'll that'll come up, and uh, I'll give my thoughts on this. Hmm. But uh, so, who is the head of of your church? You mentioned the bishop a lot, but uh, who's the head of the Church of England? Well, the head of the Church of England is Queen Elizabeth II, but we have to have a distinction between the Church of England versus the Anglican Communion. So I would say that the leader of the Anglican Communion would be the Archbishop of Canterbury, not the Queen of England. She would be only in charge of the provinces within England. So are you in uh, communion with this Archbishop of Canterbury? Uh, derivatively, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit messy. It's a bit messy, but yes, uh, as we are in communion with, uh, so it, it's a bit complicated. So I'm in the REC and we're connected with the ACNA and we are in communion with 70% of the Anglican communion at large through um, GAFCON through GAFCON. And, uh, as well, um, we have, uh, for instance, in 2016 or 17, when the when the bishops, the archbishops, or the primates, excuse me, when the primates met, which is basically a super archbishop, the so primary, the monkeys? yes, the, the monkeys, yes, the primates uh, met. <laughs> that's why I say the primates. <laughs> but anyway, so while um, we are, uh, while while we were there, our, our primates were uh, gathering and voting to do what you know, considering what to do about the Episcopal Church. Uh, Archbishop Foley Beach of the ACNA, um, I was under him at the time, uh, or he was my bishop, I should say, at the time, I'm still under him, but uh, he was given the right to vote in that and was seated full on as a primate uh, at that council or at that synod. Um, so, like, there is recognition that it's a bit more murky than just sort of like this, like, oh, you're not at all in communion with us, we're just, you know, we forget you kind of thing. There's there's a desire to try to work all of this stuff out. It's it, it, the, the water is still sort of slushing around in the tub. Okay. So Jacob says the head of the church is Jesus. So how, well, can, you, say that. how can you say that the head of the church of England is, is King Henry the eighth or whatever monarch there well, is? I, I, I don't think the church Catholic is uh, in its entirety, the church of England. So, so um, as a brief comment, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious and uh, yeah. dancing around the question a bit. Because I know better than this. But um, so the way you have to understand this from the lens of a Christian kingdom. Yes. So it makes sense when you have a Christian kingdom where the people that make up the church are basically the people that make up the, make up the state. Every single person in your kingdom is Christian. Mm -hmm. So in order to represent the people for the electing of bishops and for uh, liturgical reforms and stuff, it makes sense that the king as representative of the people would act in the person of the people in certain temporal affairs, not necessarily spiritual affairs. They're not administering the sacraments or administering church discipline or anything. But like they this. should choose the bishops, right? They, but they should. <laughs> I don't think they should choose the bishops. I'm just trying to give the best uh, steel man of the Anglican no, no, position here and not have it. Well, you think Henry VIII is the pope. Well, not necessarily. That's not. It's a little bit more nuanced than that in yeah. the uh, classical Protestant position 
on the way in which ecclesiology works. Well, and I've actually done a video on the question is uh, the monarch of England, the Pope of Anglicanism and very clearly spoiler alert. No. Uh, so I, I've done that. That's been a very common question. And I think sort of like doing those comparisons is very unhelpful because it, it's just not the same system. It's just not at all. Exactly. So um, take us a little bit, because you mentioned a little bit about the REC, which is mm -hmm. not the Episcopal Church. Take mm -hmm. us a little bit from Elizabeth I to uh, through the through the pure age of Anglicanism. Like what what happened between Elizabeth I and how did it get so bad that the REC in the late 19th century, I think late 19th century, had to split yeah. off from the uh, Episcopal Church? Oh, it was perfect. It was totally perfect that whole time. Yeah, no fights. Uh, so, you know, with the Reformation happening, you've got various groups within the Church of England. First, you know, starting with the Church of England, obviously. Um, the, the sort of two biggest ones are the sort of more Puritan wing and the more sort of Lutheran type wing. Uh, you know, Matthew Parker, for instance, would be much more representative of a sort of Lutheran type. He's uh, the first archbishop appointed by Queen Elizabeth. I love the story for uh, Matt Archbishop Parker, where he rebukes the person for calling the uh, the Deuterocanon the apocryphal books. He's like, I would never give him such a disgusting name. Those are <laughs> pious books to be read in the churches. Amen. Amen. Uh, and then you have people, obviously, you know, early martyrs within the Reformation, like uh, Latimer and Ridley, who would be much more on the sort of more... Um, you know, I don't want to say reformed, but uh, Puritan side, I guess. Like, yes. obviously, they wouldn't they wouldn't identify as Puritan, of course. Continental reformed, sort of. Which idea. is another silly one, though, because we're talking about Lutheran influence, but then we're saying continental reform influence. It's like, I, I know there's... Magisterial reformed. So, anyway, there's this back and forth, between, and that's where you get the idea of the, quote, via media, which is misunderstood as, like, we're halfway between Protestant and, and quote, Catholic, by bad naming Rome. That's not what the via media was. If anything, it's much more a sort of Geneva versus Wittenberg understanding, um, where we're, we're sort of in between those. Are you frozen? No? No. no oh, no. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, like, freaking out that I might, like, freeze again, like, with the Wi-Fi. The oh. <laughs> that's why. Um, okay, continue. So anyway, uh, we have within the you know the second half of the uh, 16th century, uh, with this Reformation happening, uh, it it starts off very strongly, much uh, well. From our perspective nowadays, from a much more Puritan-friendly sort of position, but it was not good enough for the Puritans of the early 17th century. <laughs> Um, I mean, and uh, you know this, but obviously, but uh, for your audience, you know, the Puritans, when King James uh, the sixth and first uh, ascended the throne in England, uh, or right before, I should say, maybe uh, the Puritans came up to him and they were like, well, these are the sort of requests that we would like uh, uh, as far as, you know, purifying the Church of England from its papism. <laughs> Um, you know, the, you know, stuff like wedding rings should be, you know, banned. Yeah, uh, not banned, but B A N N E D. <laughs> uh, you know, bow, yeah, bow, bowing at the name of Jesus, uh, a prayer book in general. No, um, you know, those sorts of things were were the hot items of the on the list for uh, the Puritans, and the only one that uh, King James that I know of did was the King James Bible. Like they wanted a, a new translation of the English Bible. 
And the Puritans hated the King James Bible, which is so hilarious because so many King James only love the Puritans. Because he, uh, because he uses uh, bishop and then he uses yeah, yeah. church rather than congregation and all this stuff. Yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. King James the first, he was he was a good man. He was actually raised oh, yeah. by a bunch of Presbyterians in Scotland. And then when then they, they thought he was a great pick and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get yeah. finally the man to purify the church. And then he took the he took the throne and he was like, Presbyterians don't work with bishop. I mean, don't work with kings, but bishops do. Yep. Amen. So, um, you know, you've got the uh, Stuarts. That's the Stuart line, the start of the Stuart line on, uh, of the monarchs. And you've got the English Civil War, um, Oliver Cromwell, evil. And, uh, you know, uh, the the killing of uh, William Law, the martyrdom of uh of uh, King Charles the First and all. You say the stuff. killing of William Laud and the martyrdom. The martyrdom. I know. I know. Charles I I, I would say. Okay. I should say martyrdom. I should. I I try to be as diplomatic as possible. But yes. Okay. Continue. And so, uh, talking about uh, you kind of skipped over. Well, you flashed over um, King Charles the First. So for for those listeners that are just dying to know. Was King Charles the first a uh, dirty tractarian Anglo-Catholic? No, but he was uh, he was much more like high church than what was happening at that time. Uh, so, like the perspective is that he's sort of some you know pape, you know crypto papists and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he he and Laud are the ones who are doing things like, well, let's put the altar or table um, back on the wall, not doing this sort of stupid north facing stuff and and you know <laughs> um and uh you know, having a little bit more high churchness within uh within the the liturgy itself and everything uh but he's not some sort of like um you know don gregory dicks kind of person or something you know yeah so um, um there's a question in oh unless you still have more thoughts oh no but like one of the big ones he wouldn't compromise on is the episcopate and uh that that was why that was part of why he was killed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, then, it's better. It's better to say that when it comes to King Charles, he's not necessarily a crypto papist as much as he is an anti-Puritan. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, John Fisher. Oh, go ahead. I'm, I keep. I keep. Go. Go okay. ahead. Just talk. Yeah, sure. Uh, question about the history. Would it be fair to say the Anglican Church itself undergoes a doctrine of development? Um, well, no. Yeah, I, I don't reject uh, in principle itself an understanding of, of doctrine of development. Um, the issue I have is, uh, I probably should have clarified earlier, is that when that developing of theology is sort of demanded as sort of de fide, um, where you are like hellbound if you don't hold to these things. Uh, so whether or not you think we've actually developed our doctrine, um, which you would obviously say that we haven't done it wrongly, um, what we're looking at is that we're just sort of going back to the patristics, back to scripture. Um, so we could be wrong about that, but at least in our sort of understanding of what we are doing is mm-hmm. that we're not sort of saying these new or new in the sort of the developmental way, you know, yeah, so uh, for all the the Protestant and Catholic listeners out there, believe it or not, uh, it is a historically Protestant position that doctrine develops. Read Philip Schaff, for example, and um, he talks about the development of doctrine in a in a slightly nuanced sense from Newman, uh, mm-hmm. just slightly. But uh, there is there is this understanding that there weren't um, 
people running around in the third century spouting off the 39 articles after an explicit banner. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, oh, another spicy one from John Fisher. My favorite story of Archbishop Parker is when we, Ooh. when he was ordained at Nogshead. Yes, he had a Bible placed upon his forehead and he was just so, said, you're a bishop now. Yep, that's exactly how it worked. You know, um, back when I was in community college, there was this really cute Roman Catholic girl next to me. And so this is back oh. when I was Baptist. And oh. so um, I uh, asked my very devout Roman Catholic friend uh, who was one of the classmates in that same class. I go, hey, can you tell me a little bit about Roman Catholicism? And he's like, yeah, sure. He gives me this book. Um it just gives it to me instead of like telling me about it. Uh, it's called This is the Faith. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have not. Uh, it's like a pre-Vatican II type one. And it paints it like it paints such a nasty view of Protestantism and actually goes <laughs> to like pointing to the Nog's Head fable and all that sort of stuff. It's just like literally it'll talk about how like, oh, there were storms and earthquakes and terror was striking the land and famines during the Protestant Reformation because of the wrath of God was upon Europe and all that. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. It just it was base. Uh, it's called This is the Faith. Yeah. OK, um, so. Uh, do you, oh, did you want me to go into the Nog's Head thing or? No, 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 no. That's kind of more of a niche, niche, very niche joke about um, about Archbishop Parker's ordination. Just so to say that's not how he was, he was consecrated. Just that is not at all. how. There was, was that laying on of hands. So Milan yep. Shandy asks, what is your view on the 1611 KJV? Just got one for Christmas as it's hard to find KJV nowadays with the Deutero canon. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to read this 1611. Um, but I, I mean, I love the King James in general. Uh, I don't know if he's, like, I think he's I, just referring to, uh, the, the, uh, King James version generally, because sometimes people yeah. will just call it the 1611. It's really the, yeah. the like Oxford edition yeah. from the 19th century. Yeah. So if he, if he's talking about like just the King James in general with Deuterocanon, which I think he might be pointing to specifically, um, I love it. I like my favorite Bible that I have is a King James with the Deuterocanon. My second favorite one is the RSV with the expanded Deuterocanon. Um, expanded it, it's a good one. Canon. Yeah, the expanded is it's hey, so we have more books than you do. And <laughs> uh, the Eastern Orthodox have more books than both of us. And then like the Oriental Orthodox have their own canon. Like the too. Ethiopic is like yeah. 30 knock is yeah. in there and, yeah. and yeah. such. So actually, from a, from a Catholic perspective, uh, the the King James version isn't necessarily the traditional one within Catholicism. It would be the the Dewey Reims, yeah, for in England in English, but the KJV is used within the within the ordinariate. So um, interesting. Oh. Yes, I have I have seen it used, but the um, the official official is the RSV. That's mm -hmm. what's used in the uh, in the binding of the um, what are they called? I can't even think the Commonwealth edition of the uh, of the breviary. I just realized I should probably get my mom. She's still fundamentalist King James only as Baptist. I should probably get her a 1611 or, or a King James Bible with the Deuterocanon just to just to confuse her. I've always wondered that from um, from IFB people, if they mm -hmm. believe that the um, the 1611 was truly inspired like that mm -hmm. that level of uh king james onlyism why isn't the deuterocanon inspired if i i guess they just god was inspiring it up to a certain point or something if you read the books of homilies they are inspired the deuterocanon that's what we call based and if you read jerome they're also inspired Amen. but <laughs> let's uh let's continue we just got to um william laud getting um 
destroyed mm-hmm. uh, and the English Civil War. So yeah. how about how about after that? Let's try to go from there to about right before the uh, Tractarians. Yeah. So the the point of bringing up the English Civil War and everything is to show that there are these battles happening, you know, literal battles happening between the more sort of Puritan wing and the more sort of historic Catholic uh, non-papal. And just as a clarification, anytime I use the word Catholic, it's going to be under understood within the historic, like non-papal necessary. Like I'm not requiring the papacy as part of that, just so people know, because people get confused by that. Um, so there's the sort of more Catholic tradition, and then there's the Puritan tradition, and they're having it out against each other. And so you have Cromwell, who's you know um, rejecting the Episcopate and is just a terror. He is a, a horrible person. Um, he dies, and uh, the monarchy is brought back. And uh, so basically what's been happening is that there's just been this sort of pendulum going back and forth between the two groups. And you get... Uh, Afterwards, you have a, or, or with that, all that, you have the settlement of 1662 with the prayer book uh, that becomes the official prayer book of the Church of England. And that is the prayer book that is sort of the standard for all of the prayer books. Um, and our sort of standards, our unique standards as Anglicans, are the 1662 prayer book, the 39 articles, and the, well, the ordinal as well, but that's technically different, but yeah, uh, and the uh, uh, books of homilies. Um, so with that, we we have. Um, I, I guess I should go. Should I talk about the um, uh, the Caroline divines? I guess they they sort okay. The Caroline divines are that that brand yeah, that example of sort of the the other side where you've got the Puritans on the one side and the Caroline divines are on the other side, leading up to uh, the um, uh, martyrdom of Charles the first. So, you know, after that, you've got men like John Wesley and Charles Wesley who are part of that more high church tradition. Um, and when I say high church, don't read as sort of like they're using incense and they're, you know, sort of uh, genuflecting and doing Eucharistic yeah, adoration. And even, like that. even the, uh, it's kind of funny because well, actually this will be applicable in a little bit, mm-hmm. but even when you go up to the Tractarians, like it was, they, they wouldn't light candles on their altars. They, yeah. Some of them, going would, to, yeah. even, even the ritualists would put candles on their altars, but they wouldn't light them. And and stuff they weren't using iconography like this. This yeah. insane ritualism is is much much later than this point. This isn't historically Anglican practice. Yeah. So we get then to the uh, Tractarians, and uh, there's a distinction between the Tractarians and the ritualists, which we will definitely get to. So the Tractarians, you've got you know Keeble, you've got Newman, uh, you've got uh, <laughs> you've got Saint John Henry Newman. Saint Saint uh, Edward Pusey is that we said? I'm sorry. I didn't hear <laughs> and then Pusey, who is just based, he is amazing. Yeah, Abby, have you read a lot of Pusey or no? Oh, I've read, I've read plenty of him. I've read his okay. uh, his uh, work on baptism, which was in three tracks, mm-hmm. I think. His uh, yeah. doc, one on the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist. I've read some of his mm-hmm. sermons. I've read his uh, little piece Church on History? the rule of faith. I have not, I've not read oh, that, but yeah. I. I, I mean, I was I was a lot more of on the 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 Newman side of things in the because even there's there's even categories within the Tractarian movement and yeah. putting anything in a monolith here is gonna yeah. oversimplify it a lot. So Pusey is sort of the the um, type of Tractarian I I would go with. Um, 
And he is, uh, as one, like the big example would be when you see, can you, can you stop that please? <laughs> no, um, just kidding. Um, so uh, the, the example I give of the differences between Newman and uh, Pusey is when you read Tract 90, he is, Newman is the author of that, obviously. Um, Newman is trying to defend transubstantiation as an acceptable position within uh, the articles. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to say much more than that. Um, when you see Pusey and him defending his position of the Eucharist, he is, I, I think, genuinely trying to work within the articles themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think does so very strongly uh, to point to a sort of more Lutheran type understanding of the Eucharist. And he points to the, I mean, he goes in depth with like the article or the, uh, the books of homilies is where he starts off with. He points to the history of, uh, of the reformation within itself and seeing, well, this is what Parker does. This is, he, I mean, he even goes so far as to like point out um, for instance, when the black rubric was trying to be insert, they tried to insert the black rubric as one of the articles um, I think I think it was this part. Part I might have the details a little fuzzy, but it was Parker who, like, with his red pen, like strikes it out and says, "We are not having that in there," kind of thing, you know, um, like just all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, and uh, he he, I think, gives a very robust defense of uh, this understanding that uh, the a, a Lutheran type understanding of the Eucharist, where there is a real objective presence uh, that 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 is found um, under the forms of bread and wine. Uh, that, like that is defensible within the the articles and the well not just the articles but the formularies I should say yeah another so, um another important uh, author in this era that doesn't get talked about a lot but is is very close friends with uh with E B Pusey is mm -hmm. uh, Bishop John Forbes Bishop mm -hmm. John Forbes was uh, definitely a favorite of mine he mm -hmm. his commentary on the thirty nine articles is extremely important uh, in reading later. Uh, Anglo-Catholic authors. And then also it's just a really good, really good read to give you kind of the broad sweep because he was, he was very directly involved within the earliest of the Tractarians, friends with Newman, friends with Pusey, friends with Keeble, friends with all of these guys. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't read uh, Forbes's, I think I have it, but I haven't read it yeah, yet. Yeah. 39 uh, articles. And then is yeah. also his commentary on the Nicene Creed is pretty good too. Mm. But so what happens with the Tractarians is they're, they're primarily concerned with apostolic succession, the, the understanding of, of, an, uh, of, of the importance of apostolic succession. They, uh, and they're the sacramental theology of the dominical sacraments, uh, the baptismal regeneration and uh, the Eucharist. The, those are their bigger, bigger concerns. Um, mm -hmm. They were not, quote, high churchmen in the uh, sense that it would be understood today at all. I mean, yeah. um, like uh, Pusey would definitely have been just wearing a um, uh, a surplus, uh, you know, cassock surplus and tippet. Uh, he yeah, would not be wearing a stole. Yeah. Sacrificial vestments. It was very interesting, too, um, to, to add on to, to your points about the, the Tractarian movement, is a point that I think gets forgotten is that a large... Uh, aspect and motivating factor of uh of the anglo-catholic movement in its earliest stages was uh the relationship between what we would call the church and the state that sort of mm. that sort of idea and the autonomy of the church catholic and her bishops from certain doctrinal influences yeah. and coercion coming from the crown 
Well, it, it actually, yeah, it, it started with uh, national apostasy with, uh, mm. I think it was Keeble, right? He wrote that yes. sermon. Um, and he talks about, uh, it, what was the issue? It was the um, the closing of diocese or the sort of consolidating of diocese within uh, the Church of Ireland, right? Uh, I think it was the um, the Scottish Episcopal Church, if I'm remembering. I thought it was correctly. the Church of Ireland. Louis the, real, is, uh, the real Church of Ireland is the Roman Church. So, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, Louis uh, is. Uh, uh, do you know Chinglican? Should I? I sorry, Chinglican. Yes, I know Chinglican. Yes. Yeah, he's actually in the room here with me, and he's he's whispering, "It was the Church of Ireland." Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I so defer with, to him uh, definitely. With um the Church of Ireland, you get some in its earliest stages some very very uh, solid theologians like you have Archbishop Usher. Usher is a very uh, well, obviously well-read. He's more on the Puritan side. If you want to get an example of uh, Puritan tendencies, definitely Archbishop Usher is is a great one. He was one of the greatest influences on the Westminster Assembly, even though he was a uh, he was the Archbishop of um, not Dublin. He was the Archbishop of one of the other important sees in Ireland. Was it Belfast? I don't think it's Belfast. I, I think uh, it starts. I don't know. Chinglican. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so um, the point being that, uh, well, well, moving on then, I guess. So we've got the Tractarian movement and it sort of spreads uh, I, I, like very strongly um, and get in throughout the 19th century um, connected to it somewhat, but it's not like you, it's just, it's another movement, the ritualist movement, which then becomes the externals, the idea of, something as as uh, horrible as you know putting candles on the altar um mm -hmm. you know those sorts of things uh and uh you know wearing uh, a stole wearing a chasuble and all that sort of all that sort of stuff it gets developed um and this is where you see a split within tractarianism slash anglo-catholicism uh where in the church of england you see anglo-catholicism i would say become a more sort of papal prone to understanding Yes, and yes. the the American context, it's much more sort of Pusey. So, like the spirit of of Newman versus the spirit of Pusey, spirit of yes. Newman being in in England, exactly. and the spirit of Pusey being in uh, America. So, one of my favorite battles that happened within uh, the United States context of uh, the ritualists is uh, James DeCoven, another amazing bishop. I love him. Uh, the, the Episcopal Church, uh, you know, in the 1800s, with, there um, are people who are using incense within uh, the uh, uh, Holy Communion, and uh, they are looking at banning incense within the Episcopal Church, saying no one may use incense. And they were going to claim within that that canon that uh, no one may use incense, and that it's sort of like it's an affront to God or something like that. So James DeCoven, uh, he talks to the uh, to the bishops, and he goes. Look, I don't use incense. I actually can't stand it. I, I really don't like incense. I don't care if you ban incense at all. Um, you can keep it. You can ban it. I don't care. Do not ban it by saying that it is opposed to scripture. <laughs> and he yeah. just goes like passage after passage after passage showing like, look, like this is definitely within scripture. You cannot do not like embarrass us basically. <laughs> You know, yeah, so and definitely within up, the definitely within the uh, Catholic scope of liturgy. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna yeah. clear up some questions in the chat oh, yeah, real sure. quick. We got a few while you were saying while we were talking about the Tractarian. So, what's your understanding of soteriological differences in early Anglicanism? 
Um, it would be very nuanced. Maybe some differences on the understanding of justification, like the the sort of uh, uh, the Calvin understanding of justification versus mm. the Luther understanding. I can't honestly I, not much more beyond that. Yeah, I can't think of. Uh, there was definitely much more differences amongst the Puritans than there was amongst oh. the broader scope of, uh, of of Anglican authors. I can't think of much at all differences. Yeah. Okay, well, although even even the uh, early Puritans would not have denied the efficacy of the sacraments. I mean, John Calvin. I don't know any. Um, uh, well, let me think. No, I'm sorry. I'm saying Puritans. I'm saying I'm thinking reformers. The earlier, yeah, reformers. yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, when you get to the the 1600s, that changes a bit. But yeah, yeah. Even um, even that distinction between the uh, the the Lutherans and the reformers is a bit anachronistic. Yeah. You read Bishop John Davenant, another amazing, amazing person to mm -hmm. read. One of those just exemplifiers of 17th century English scholarship, which he was just an amazing author. He mm -hmm. he's, knows the medievals like the back of his hand. But Bishop John Davenant called Melanchthon a reformed divine, for example. Mm -hmm. so, so you can see how these terms are a lot more fluid back yeah, then. And then there isn't this hard and fast uh, separation between the two. So mm -hmm. we have another one from Elijah. Development of doctrine is problematic. There can be a development of terminology, though. So yeah, I would suggest you um, you watch the videos that I did on that because development of doctrine is a lot more nuanced than that, and it's probably a lot more agreeable to to what you're thinking to what you're uh, saying than you would think. The the best form of the development of doctrine, I would say, is the sort of uh, the understanding of application mm -hmm. of the same doctrine within new situations. That's yeah, yeah, and and then also a uh, a making of new distinctions due to uh, due to certain opposition that there yeah. wasn't before. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Allen's Allen's got it right on the nose. So a lot of people don't know what the doctrinal development is. That's mm -hmm. right. So Bible Talk JHS, you're Catholic now, right? Yes, I am Catholic now. You were Catholic before you became Roman. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I just I just said that to to get on. Father James, he he is famous. There's memes made about Father James about every time you use Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic or uh, or Papist, yeah. as he would say, he says not Catholic, it's Papist. Yep, and I don't use it as an insult. I'm not trying to be insulting. It's just uh, and people get really offended when I do that. I'm like, I'm not trying to be insulting. You have to understand where we're coming from. Like, you can't force us. Like. Our understanding is that we are part of the church Catholic. Mm -hmm. So the idea of calling you guys just Catholic, it, it it's as annoying to me as when people say, are you Catholic or Christian? Yeah. I'm like, no, Roman Catholics are Christian. Like, and obviously they're thinking yeah. Catholic as in Roman Catholic. Like, no, no, no. Like, that's not how it, yeah. It's as annoying to me as, as, as that is. Yeah. Okay. So he says, I know a little bit about it, but many of Newman's conclusions seems very problematic and odd. I don't think um, in the development of doctrine it would be, problematic or odd i can't think of anything except for you he talks about uh the development of the of the papacy over time and then s some of his conclusions but if you're i believe elijah you're a roman catholic i can't remember but if you're a roman catholic you should have no problems with what he's saying so uh john fisher has a question so should charles ii have been allowed to rule as a romanist if we accepted the divine right of kings no because we would have been forced to be romanists based <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's problematic i mean um like so when it comes to that it, it's a tough issue uh look for instance what happens with mary tudor you know and if i believe that um 
the you know the Anglican tradition is something that God wishes to preserve. Uh, I believe that if uh, Charles II had uh, remained, then uh, there would have been something like a Mary Tudor situation. Obviously, not exactly the same, but the point being that we go from a Roman monarch to a, a an Anglican monarch. You know. Yeah. So um, Elijah said, "Nope, I'm Eastern Orthodox." So yeah, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. From my understanding, I've been uh, I've been getting a little more into Eastern Orthodox readings of the development of doctrine. But there's a good article. I can't remember what. Uh, just look it up on JSTOR, or it might be on Academia, just on uh, Eastern Orthodox readings of the development of doctrine, because it is a bit more of a, a bit more of this uh, modern tendency among the Eastern Orthodox to be super anti-Western and, yeah. and, and stuff it's like that. Coming, com- yeah. yeah, yeah, coming from the same stream as like Augustine was terrible and we hate Aquinas, rather than a more Saint uh, Augustine. Aquinas. Yes, Saint Augustine and Saint Thomas Aquinas. Yes. So, um, canonized yeah. as a saint by the East, like considered yes. a fully canonized saint. <laughs> yes, that, that's that's the annoying part of it because, like, mm-hmm. how are you how how are you saying these things against canonized saints? Yeah. So, um, Father James, you consider the other Apostolic Churches Catholic, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Assyrian Church of the East. So um, I make a distinction when I talk about Catholicity. So when it comes to the externals, uh, I would say like sacramentally. Uh, the, all of those branches have uh, everything that's needed uh, for full Catholicity. So uh, proper understanding of baptism uh, and proper uh, administration of baptism because we're speaking externally. So proper proper administration of baptism, proper administration of uh, the Eucharist, mm-hmm. proper administration of holy orders, uh, and proper administration of marriage. Those are, I would say, the big four. Um, when it comes to sort of doctrinally Catholic, I would say that there are excesses um, within uh, Rome. There are um, not as many successes, obviously, uh, excesses uh, as uh, obviously within like the East, but some corruptions, like some rather disturbing things, uh, which are not sort of fully dogmatized, but very much accepted. For instance, um, well, I would say universalism is, is in many ways accepted by uh, many in the east but also like the toll booths thing and just you know things like that you know just uh the um what's the ACOE uh, Assyrian uh, the, Church, Assyrian okay. Church of the East, so, so the historian the so-called historian Church of the East yeah, yeah. my understanding is actually that we are in full communion with the Assyrian Church of the um, East. I think with the Anglican communion and the and the Roman yeah. communion for that for that matter is there mm-hmm. was a joint statement made on Christology with both the Oriental Orthodox yeah. and the Assyrian Church of the East. So there's not really this uh, understanding of heresy, but it kind of comes down to politics and history, which is yeah. what's separating yeah. us. That and the Assyrian Church of the East can get a little weird when it comes to um, Judaizing. They have like yeah. certain things about the slaughtering of animals and dietary laws yeah. and and weird stuff like that that I just learned about like a few months ago yeah. and I thought that was quite odd. Yeah. Um. Also, the Oriental Orthodox. Honestly, um, I know some bishops and clergymen in who are in uh, who who deal with like the Oriental Orthodox, uh, especially mm-hmm. in Egypt, and essentially we are in communion with them. It's just sort of like it, it's not even an issue. Um, there are, and I, I will say. Um, this this might disturb you. I know a bishop, a particular bishop, who has um, been invited to co-ordain, uh, to, to lay hands on ordinance within the Roman uh, communion, like by the bishops there. This is in Africa. Does not surprise me. 
at all. Uh, it was done by Cardinal Sarah, of course. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Watson asked, I just chimed in. I didn't know there were Anglicans that weren't English. Are there Ang Americans that are Anglican? Maybe I seem really dumb right now. So how no, are you broadly speaking? That's just speaking? really odd, yeah. Yeah, so um, you, you, you can go ahead. But uh, what, when it comes to the specific term Anglican, properly speaking, we're we're commonly talking about the uh, the Church of England, properly speaking, is the only Anglican church. But improperly speaking, those churches that are the descendants of the uh, of the Church of England, we can improperly call it Anglican as in communion with the Anglican Church, just in the same way where um, the technically the uh, you have a French bishop, what makes him Roman? He's in communion with the, the Roman pontiff. That's why we call him Roman Catholic. In the same sense, you can think about uh, the Episcopal Church, or well, if you wouldn't say the, the Reformed Episcopal Church, as being Anglican in that they have a certain spiritual lineage and yeah. uh, historical patrimony and uh, communion with uh, the English Church. May I give you another um, story that might concern you? Oh, man. Go I've ahead. heard from uh, bishops within the Reformed Episcopal Church how they, uh, whenever they're invited to uh, uh, the Vatican, um, and this is actually, um, oh, I don't know if I should say which one, maybe I shouldn't, uh, but when, the, you know, when they're invited to the Vatican, uh, the guards are uh, actually treat them as bishops. They give uh, whatever it is, the bow or salute that, that's uh, appropriated towards bishops, that's given to bishops. Uh, so they are treated as actual bishops. That's okay. I think... Um... I think the REC has valid orders. Ah, uh, that's right. You believe that, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so um, yeah, that that's really that's really interesting, but I'm not I'm not too surprised because I mean, look at how the Francis, uh, yeah, the Holy Father Pope Francis, Bishop of Rome and Primate of England, dealt with yeah. uh <laughs> with Archbishop uh, Welby, so-called Archbishop yeah. Welby. <laughs> there, there he's still to be... he's still val validly consecrated, so I have to call him Archbishop Welby. Yeah, so there seems to be a um, little bit. I, I don't know whether it's just outward honors or that makes a theological statement, but um, take take it as you will. I I still uh, am required to assent to um, yeah. to to the bull apostolica curiae on um, on these issues. The absolute bull. The absolute <laughs> bull. <laughs> okay, so early Christian England would have disagreed with the reformers. That's an assertion. How do modern Anglicans view the Romanist English church pre-Reformation? So I think uh, the, this question is dealing with how would you view the medieval English church? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, so if you look at the reformers during the 16th century, they are quoting Thomas Aquinas. They are quoting yeah. the scholastics. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, are there any, um, maybe Zwingli, but are there any reformers who are not Thomists? Um, when it comes to philosophy, I mean, you have the ones that aren't too systematic, so I guess you, you can okay, only at least limit to the major ones. improper when, when you get into the scholastic era, yeah. when you get into the second and third generation, when they're actually doing uh, doing theology, then yeah, they're Thomas, and especially if we're since we're talking specifically about the Church of England, there is that heavy, heavy, heavy stream that comes from Vermigli because you look yes. at um, you look at uh, Bishop John uh. The one that wrote the second book of homilies, 
who wrote the second book Jewel, of homilies? Jewel, Jewel, John Jewell. Bishop John Jewell was a student of Vermigli and best friends with him. Mm -hmm. So, so like things like this, you have a very strong Thomist extreme coming into the coming into the Church of England. There, there is this understanding that when Roman Catholics or or Eastern Orthodox are sort of dialoguing with, and this is not you obviously, but when uh, they're dialoguing with Protestants, they sort of look at someone like a James White and a John MacArthur, um, and they're thinking they're, they're sort of inserting that into the arguments made by the Protestant reformers. Yeah. And no, I, I, I'm not using hyperbole here. When you look at someone like John MacArthur or James White or, or someone like that, um, compare, like draw a line there, you know, draw a dot there on this line and put like the papacy on the other end. The reformers are far closer to <laughs> the, 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 the Roman Catholics uh, than they are to the uh, the sort of them, uh, and, and that that's sort of what frustrates me is that uh, wh when Protestantism is sort of critiqued by some of the big names, you know, like uh, Matt Frad and and even Trent Horn to some extent, mm. uh, they tend to when they mean when they say Protestant, they mean James White yeah. or John MacArthur, and I'm like, please no, <laughs> like <Yeah>. no. <laughs> I, I go back and forth on it because in, in, in a certain sense, when we're doing uh, the apologetic task, we're, we're going for our for the audience which we're speaking to. Yeah. And there's probably more people, uh, no offense by this statement, but there's probably more people at Elevations campuses and Hillsong's campuses in the United States than there is in the entire REC. So so when when they're when they're trying to point uh, and trying to convert uh, generally speaking, evangelicals, they're, mm -hmm. they're talking to this audience where mm -hmm. I, on the other hand, that's not my audience. Usually yeah. when I'm talking to usually the people watching this video right now, if they're Protestant, they're mostly like you and they're not mm -hmm. like, uh, whatever his name is from elevation, uh, Stephen Furtick. <laughs> Stephen Furtick. Yeah, no. And, and that, and I under, I can understand to an extent that, but Obviously, you know, me being here, it frustrates me when like, it's like yeah. well, the Protestants say this. I'm like, ah, <laughs> that tiny voice, you know, although worldwide, obviously sort of more traditional Protestantism is, is here. Um, uh, but like it, it just it, it frustrates me. Uh, for me, I appreciate it when that caveat is made where it's like, well, yeah. this isn't this isn't classical Protestantism. We have to make a distinction between sort of like what's understood by I mean. Like the Baptist tradition is not Protestant, strictly yeah. speaking. Um, the Presbyterians are not even strictly speaking Protestant. Mm. You know, they are 100, 100 years after, basically. You know, and mm. then you know the Baptists a little bit after that with the Reformed Baptists and such. Not that you wouldn't find people who have some sort of beliefs, like rejection of of infant baptisms, so like the Anabaptists and all that. Uh, mm. But like the idea of like this group known as the Reformed Baptists, that's not Protestant. That is. 1689 is the London Baptist, or I think the second London Baptist Confession, yes. or whatever. Um, I don't remember when the first one is, but that's the one I I, I know. Um, I think 1646. I think yeah, 1640s uh, somewhere. Um, and you know the Presbyterians, uh, no, before that too, with with Westminster. Uh, the closest mm -hmm. you get is maybe the Dutch Reformed. So yeah, the Dutch Reformed you could maybe, but like they're called the Dutch yeah. Reformed, but they're called Presbyterians, you know. So yes. So um, we have another one from Elijah. So historically, why have Anglicans held the different Eucharistic theology while being in communion with each other, i.e. Lutheran and Calvinist? Doesn't this seem contradictory? 
Well, I mean, every group uh, does allow for contradictory beliefs within it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Roman Catholics, uh, you can either be more Dominican in your understanding of, of predestination and, uh, and you know, uh, predestination God's uh, foreknowledge, uh, or you can be more Molinistic, uh, and I'm a Molinist, and you're not. Uh, but like, uh, uh, as a, if I were to become a Roman Catholic, I could still be a Molinist um, in, in good standing, even though those so are you'd not. Be, so you're saying you'd be a, a Jesuit priest if you became Roman Catholic? Oh yeah, I'd join Father James Martin right away. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. I would be his acolyte. <laughs> <laughs> so Father James Martin to Father James Gad. There you go. Yeah. No. Um, so yeah, so uh, get, and, get, and like uh, six day creationism versus you know theistic evolution, like both positions are uh, acceptable within the Roman Church. Uh, so now, not to say that like uh, these are and these are important things like God's predestination, mm-hmm. God's foreknowledge, uh, what, the the age of the earth, and how God creates and everything like that. Um, so the Eucharist is an important thing. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, but for me. I have to. I am okay with the Calvin Vermigli understanding of the Eucharist. I don't agree with it, but I think it is still acceptable within that broad range of orthodoxy. It's important to understand that when you're talking about the differences between a Cranmer, Vermigli, Bucer, uh, mm-hmm. Calvin, and 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 all and all those versus a Lutheran understanding of the Eucharist, you're actually not speaking about as big of a difference as the modern day online Lutherans would like you to believe. It's really, everybody's agreeing that Christ is present. We're speaking about different modes of presence. And I would even add myself into here as a transubstantiationist and say that when I'm speaking to my Lutheran and reformed separated brethren, that it isn't, it isn't that we're disagreeing. On mm-hmm. on whether Christ is present, like like uh, Bishop Lancelot Andrews said in his response to Bellarmine, like mm-hmm. we all are saying that Christ is present. Yeah. We all we're all on that side. We're all cheering for this is my body. Like nobody's, I mean, nobody in a, in a classical sense is disagreeing with that. Mm-hmm. So it's re- it's really important that uh, that the Anglican Church, in allowing for these two views, aren't allowing for okay, Christ is present, Christ is not present. I'm sure if there's any memori- strict memorialists over back then, then they would be condemned harshly. But it is allowing for specific differences when it, and nuances when it comes to the mode of Christ's presence. Yeah, memorialism is condemned by um, the formularies, the Anglican formularies. That, and even among an Presbyterians, position. too. Yeah, if you look even- at the Scots, the Scots Confession, it says, we utterly damn the vanity of those who say that the sacraments do not give grace. Yeah. It's like it's like that language. I think we should. I love uh, it. We should accept that as Rome in, in, within the uh, Vatican three documents. So, question mm-hmm. for Father James: American Revolution, based or cringe? Cringe. Amen. Okay, so Alan, he has one in the chat. So I know that you think Venerable Bede is too papal, but what do you think of his other views? Well, it's not so much that he's too papal; it's just he hates too much the uh, the um, quote Celtic Christianity. I mean, obviously he doesn't call it that, but I mean he's just such a jerk to them. I'm like, I'm sorry for them <laughs> having a different day of Easter. Oh, like he, yeah, and just you know, I'm sorry that their tonsures are slightly different, you know, but you, do you really have to spit on them for that? You know, <laughs> I I I mean, I've just been reading a lot of documents uh, surrounding mm-hmm. Council of Nicaea, and the dating of Easter was like. A very huge deal. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it looking through through modern lens, it seems a bit silly that because we through the east and the west, we do have a different date of Easter, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, through through their lens, it was a it was a pretty big deal. 
So uh, I love it. John Fisher 2.0, James White would have been given a third baptism. To never to have gotten up from. <laughs> yeah, I don't so say I want that to happen. I'm not saying for yeah. those for those that uh, don't understand the joke. Uh, since um, I think this was in is in Wittenberg or maybe it was in. Um, yeah, I think I, I can't remember one of the reformed cities or Lutheran cities, um, but the Anabaptists arose and started baptizing each other and giving them their their second baptism. That's what Anabaptist means, rebaptizer. Mm -hmm. So the civil magistrates decided that they were going to give them a third baptism and drown them in the river. Mm -hmm. So um, the reformers would have considered White and MacArthur heretics. Yes. So have you read Suarez's Apologetic Against Anglicans? It's free online. Yeah, so that's um, no, on Aristotophile. Um, mm -hmm. He has that, and then it's also in print too. Would I've you say it's it. worth reading? Yeah. Um, I would say because I mean, when you're reading, like I would rather read Suarez against the Anglicans than I would uh, nothing against Trenton Horn, but ten Trenton Horn books, yeah. because Suarez, uh, hate him, love him. He's a highly respected scholastic, and the way he's doing theology is supercharged compared to a lot of more modern authors. So he's very judicious. He's uh, fair with the sources mm -hmm. and uh, he has a very sharp, sharp intellect. So bully asks, Oh, this is a can of worms. So what do you think of woman ordination in the English church? Do you think it's a huge dilemma when it comes to dialogue with the Vatican and Orthodox? It is heresy and it is a huge dilemma. Yes. As um, I'm sure you would agree um, with Pope, I think it was Pope John Paul II, he said that the church has no authority to ordain women, Amen. even if it wanted to. Amen. Yeah, no. Uh, so that is one of the biggest issues within Anglicanism today. People talk about it like the gay marriage, you know, gay quote marriage thing. But um, I think the the more root cause of it is something um, sort of the egalitarianism, uh, the women's quote ordination, uh, which I think a necessary consequence of that is gay quote marriage. So you can't like, and that's one of the issues that is happening within the ACNA is that mm -hmm. some dioceses are allowed to quote ordain women. And uh, those dioceses obviously tend to be more liberal and it, it's hard to see how they can maintain the idea that women's ordination is okay, but gay marriage is not, especially when you hear some of them, uh, arguing things like, well, you know, Galatians, what is it? Galatians three twenty seven or whatever, you know, there's no male nor female. Uh, I'm like, well, if, if you're saying that for the, um, the Holy sacrament of ordination, yeah. uh, why not say it for marriage? If you know, no male or female, you know? Okay. So Elijah asks, uh, what is the name of the controversy between Banyas and Molina? That's the De Auxilis controversy. If you were, if you were wondering. So, um, so John Fisher, Cardinal Bellarmine is a Molinist while keeping predestination prior to merit, using middle knowledge as a means to bring predestined to salvation. And Elijah asks, I thought Bellarmine was silent on the matter. So actually, yes, Bellarmine would be considered a very light Molinist as a, don't think I'm smart. I was actually just reading the section in uh, Cardinal Pohl's dogmatic theology and he covers the matter. So uh, oh, if, you want the, if you want the reference to that, Elijah, I can send it to you if you reach out to me. So... Looks like all the questions in the chat are done. So uh, I think we still have a little bit of history to do. So we we got yeah. to the Anglo, we talked about the Anglo-Catholics and such. But talking specifically about, um, I guess I'll kind of skip over most of the 20th century. 
Uh, actually, 20th century is important. No, I think the 20th century is so, important. I wouldn't yeah, bring up late, the liberalism. Late, yeah. yeah, late 19th century. Um, the, the REC, where did it come from? I really want that to come from the mouth of you. Oh, yeah, totally. It yeah. From. So it came because of its rejection of the ritualists. Uh, <laughs> and um, what is so amazing about the REC, and this is what I love about it, is that um, – the you know the ritualists are rejecting things like you know uh, candles on the table the holy communion table and stuff like that uh then what happens is when the liberalism of the 20th century happens within the episcopal church and all that sort of stuff the the high church traditional anglicans who are you know thoroughly ritualists they abandon ship of the episcopal church and join groups like the rec and so there's a strong high church uh some might say anglo-catholic branch within the rec which has been sort of amazing that this group that uh was you know the, i don't think it's quite fair to say that they are presbyterians with prayer books but it's kind of almost close you know you know presbyterians with uh, bishops and prayer books um but uh if you look at the like uh the first uh, rec prayer book very different from uh what we use today the first yeah. rec prayer book's kind of garbage just to let you guys know it's, it's not gonna bad. say that but <laughs> i can't coming, i can't say that from, book. coming from somebody who is who deeply loves the prayer book uh -huh. it, they they butchered my boy with uh <laughs> with the REC, the original rec prayer book yeah. so we we're getting to the in an american context if we were going to yeah. do a worldwide context this would be a forever interview okay. yeah. so we're we're getting to um we're getting into a a streak of dissent between Tractarians and mm -hmm. um, and the more Puritan wing, mm -hmm. which uh, which the REC arose out of in in an American context. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting into the early 20th century. We got the the, the 28 Prayer Book made. Is there anything else really going on? I can't think of anything in the pre 1978 context. Oh, there's a major thing. Um, uh, the what am um, I missing? Uh, is it Lambeth 10? Is it? Uh, 1933. Oh, the, yes, 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 yes. So, um, this I think is a sort of first step that you see of of inching towards liberalism, uh, where but although I don't actually, I don't think I disagree with Lambeth 10's position. All right, contraceptives. Uh, yes, because
over uh, contraceptives and really the underlying theology that was behind it. Because when you have these outward, they, they weren't really fighting over contraceptives, although they were fighting over contraceptives, there's deeper ideological divides below the surface that's bubbling forth um, in mm -hmm. these. So then we get into, um, then we get into the 1950s, 60s and 70s where yeah. everything really started to go wrong. Yeah. So I would say that it's a few different things. Have you read, um, uh, Ross Douthat's uh, Bad Religion. I have not. It's a good book. Um, it, it's more for a layman's level and everything, but it's a really good book. Uh, it's it sort of uh, describes the issues happening within the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Essentially, what happens is that a lot of you know the mainline denominations are exploding, and they are fighting the good fight against the you know racism of of you know segregation and all that sort of stuff. And what happens is, uh, they they sort of are, are in love with that power and that 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 uh, warm love that they're receiving within that, and so they're looking for those next battles. So then it becomes sort of the uh, the egalitarian question, which is sort of seen as equal rights or whatever, yeah. um, as if you know, as if um, complementarianism is not equal rights, uh, but. You know that that it goes from the the sexism thing to well LGBT stuff and and you know along that you know sexual freedom quote you know and all that so there that that's part of the story that's not the whole story um, so there's that issue that's happening um, uh, coinciding with that is there's this sort of desire to be seen as more loving and open to others and everything um, you know happening there. Uh, Part of that might be a reaction to World War II, uh, seeing sort of the intolerance of, you know, sort of anti-Semitism and everything that mm. there's just sort of like there's this pendulum swing. Um, not that I'm at all advocating for anti-Semitism, obviously, but um, there's that pendulum swing to see like, oh, we're open accepting of everyone and that, that sort of stuff. And that's actually where you start seeing. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the uh, the. Uh, lectionary of uh 1945 for the 1928 prayer book when they updated the lectionary mm -hmm. they got uh they took out uh of the lectionary readings uh, uh romans uh one what is it 26 through 28 or whatever like just explicitly that one section about homosexuality <laughs> really I didn't, yes. I didn't know that yeah so yeah at this point you have to realize that uh it may not seem like this today because the episcopal church is basically dying mm -hmm. but in the early and mid 20th century the Episcopal church had more money than God. <laughs> like they, the Episcopal church has it, to this day, more money than some small countries have yeah, money. Oh, Their yeah. endowments are massive. They, they just have, they're just mm -hmm. loaded with money. They're loaded with yeah. boomers who are high class. And in, and in this time in America, it is it is seen as an affluent thing to be a part of the Episcopal Church. Yeah, the idea was that um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Um, oh, what's that movie called? Arsenic and Old Lace. No, I have not. Uh, so it, it's an amazing movie. You should watch it. But there's this conversation among uh, these uh, these two sisters about sort of like these these people that they've met and like, oh, he's a Methodist. Oh, he's a Baptist. He, you know, he's an Episcopalian or whatever. And like it's it's indicating these sort of different structures of of hierarchy so if you're rich you're an episcopalian maybe it maybe a presbyterian um if you're sort of middle to lower class you're methodist if you're like really poor you're baptist or whatever yeah you know um and then so, the roman catholics aren't even humans yeah they're, they're not christians you know they're muslims <laughs> or something aren't they <laughs> so um, so yeah okay so we have a quick question to chat that i'll mm -hmm. that i'll go over so Militant Thomist, 
and uh, I'm assuming you too, Father James. Mm -hmm. Who are your go-to guys for intercession in the Performed Church in England? I know King Henry VIII, the seventh, I'm assuming he means the eighth, isn't canonized, but I pray to him and King Henry the sixth. Maybe he means seventh at that point. So, um, probably. So, for which which saints to to pray to? I mean, uh, when it comes to intercession, it isn't strictly in the Roman Church uh, restricted to the saints uh, who are canonized, but it it can be more broadly. Or we would never be able to canonize any saint because in order for a canonization to happen, two two miracles of intercession documented have to occur with them. So, uh, so for me personally, who I have specific devotion to in the church in England, I'm assuming he said that on purpose rather than the church of, of England, uh, Anselm of Canterbury, he's a very important saint, uh, John Fisher, um, Thomas Moore, uh, John Henry Newman, and, uh, well, he said pre-reformed. Yeah. <laughs> and if, yeah, if you mean pre-reformed, uh, John Henry Newman doesn't count, but if you look at the intro video to, uh, to my to my um to my videos and that actually just kind of goes through all of them also the venerable bead is another uh another good one broadly speaking blessed john dunn scotus since he was a scotsman i guess you could you could include him yeah so do you have Although any not at the time not not necessarily part yeah. because yeah but um do you have I mean, any pre-reformation saints that you have a specific devotion to in england yeah, so I would not hold to the same understanding of intercession that uh, Roman Catholics would. Uh, the I find an acceptable form of intercession to be this, that asking God to have the saints pray for you, and you can name particular ones, is appropriate. Um, I, I don't think that should be considered controversial in the least. Uh, so I, w with prayers, I ask God to have particular saints pray for me. You know, um, That being understood... So um, I used to really dislike uh, St. Anselm. Uh, he's growing on me a bit. Um, uh, Venerable Bede, same thing. Uh, he, he's gotten, yeah, I've appreciated him better. Uh, our, we can count St. Patrick, right? Yes. Okay, good. Um, Although more properly speaking, he's Church of Ireland, but. Uh, well, he's not, he's not from Ireland, no. Well. I think he was born in Scot in what would now be Scotland. Yes, but uh, when when we talk about the the fountainhead of the Church of Ireland, like Archbishop Usher is writing about that, like those yeah, those yeah. dang those dang English get their succession from uh, from those mm -hmm. papists over there with uh, with Saint oh, yeah. Augustine of Canterbury, yeah. but we Irish get it from Saint Patrick. <laughs> yes, um, if we're going to do sort of uh, Anglicans post Reformation too. Uh, Definitely C.S. Lewis by far. Um, I know he's not canonized, uh, but uh, C.S. Lewis, everyone loves C.S. Lewis. And I'm I'm yeah. always quick to point out that he is ours, not yours. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, St. Charles the Martyr, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, uh, Lancelot Andrews, E.B. Pusey, of course. Um, those are major uh, voices for me. Um, let me, it was more pre-reformation. So I'm going to think of some others, uh, Edward, the confessor actually. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Edward, the confessor. So in, uh, in just a note for the, for the listeners in Anglican praxis, there isn't really, depending on who you ask, formal canonization processes that happened, but it's more organic and from the ground level. So for after when, uh, when King Charles the first was, was killed, there was this popular level piety where he would be in, in certain hymns and uh, yeah. 
yeah. and the like, and he was and he was loved greatly. So um, so organically, he's now referred to as Saint Charles, King and Martyr. Mm-hmm. That's really the only one you'll have universally among the Anglican tradition. Post Reformation referred to as Saint. The others are uh, usually referred to in normal uh, normal lingo as Blesseds. So, for yeah. example, Blessed EBPUC. Not that I'm yeah. saying he was blessed, but. <laughs> it was totally. no but um and that that points to my my reason for uh saying you know william laud instead of uh being martyred uh although i do believe he's martyred it's like he's not known as a martyr uh mm-hmm. broadly speaking although i would say he definitely is um and uh i think he should be considered a canonized saint as much as uh saint charles the martyr is so okay so we're in after this brief aside we're in the late 1970s which happened so do you want to tell us mm-hmm. about like the philadelphia 11 and then the convention of 78 yeah. the 79 prayer book and stuff like that yeah so the sort of uh breaking point one of the breaking points becomes the philadelphia 11 and the philadelphia 11 is uh these 11 uh deacons uh female deacons and I think you can at least make an argument about the legitimacy of female deacons. I I don't necessarily agree, but at least an argument could be made there. Um, And uh, it was totally staged. This was not some sort of, quote, movement of the spirit, which is exactly what they were trying to pretend it was. But um, there was this alleged movement of the spirit where these bishops who were all retired, uh, I think all of them, were like, we feel the spirit of God telling us to ordain these women to become priests. And so... um, they did it during that liturgy, uh, and that was a breaking point for uh, Anglicanism. Where, um, honestly, other than the REC, there weren't really breakaway groups of Anglicans within the Episcopal Church. Uh, uh, and so, what happens is uh, it's just sort of like there's a fracturing um, there, where you've got what's na- then later known as the continuing movement, uh, and then that group itself just sort of fractures because of petty fights and all that yeah. fun stuff happening there continue and then the other focal fights oh yeah i i've <laughs> as an outsider i've i've seen them and it's fun yeah um then uh 2003 is gene robinson this is just sort of the descent of of the episcopal church and liberal western anglicanism uh just you see it keep going 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 uh gene robinson 2003 is a non-celibate gay man who is quote married he leaves his wife for this guy and um eventually they're quote later divorced as well um and and, i mean like there's no reason whatsoever to have him even if you're for quote gay marriage uh he was a drunkard he had issues with with uh, alcohol abuse and all that sort of stuff so he has no qualifications uh so gene robinson is quote consecrated as a bishop of was it new jersey or whatever new hampshire something like that and uh, that was sort of like, okay, that is the final straw. And so a huge movement, about 25% of the Episcopal Church uh, breaks away and decides to form a new province. That includes bishops, obviously. And uh, uh, the Church of Nigeria is one of the major groups that sort of helps foster this new province within the, REC the too, United States. Correct. And the REC joins. And so in 2009, we have the ACNA with the REC uh, sort of uh, – uh, almost like an FSSP sort of group under it. Not quite, obviously. It's not, but like this sort of group with our own canons, but we're still under the jurisdiction of you under the same jurisdiction of um, uh, the province. Okay. And that brings us to our modern day situation. You have the ACNA yep. basically. And then that other group we talked about, the continuum, 
who uh, who has kind of dwindled. I mean, to, to so be to fair, they've it, gotten their nice act thing. together. I would they say have, they've they've started they've started uh, forming unity, but it's not a yeah. uh, a major group by any means compared yeah. to how how big the um, how big the ACNA is, and then the current state, sadly, of the Episcopal Church is that it's it's going to be dead in a decade or two. I would give it a bit longer than that, but um, essentially it is dead, honestly, already. Um, there, are, I, I will say this. There are the more, quote, conservative uh, dioceses, which are, you know, um, Central Dallas, Florida, Central Florida, um, uh, Middle Tennessee, uh, et cetera, where uh, they are actually growing, and uh, especially like Central Florida and Dallas. In fact, I've got a friend of mine who is a priest in uh, Dallas, and he is constantly reminding me, like, hey, if you ever want, I can get you a job here. Um, and, it would be a lot of like, money. <laughs> it would be a lot of money, and that's the yeah. thing. Like, that's the t- and like he's not a bad guy. He's a great guy. Um, but I just I can't. Uh, even with a quote more conservative uh, bishop, um, which I have a lot of respect for Sumner and 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 uh, uh, who's the one in uh, Brewer and, and and you know and the others Bowerschmidt. Um, it's just that I uh, I I cannot uh, I cannot place myself under a bishop who. Um, holds to things that are detrimental to the faith or yeah. is is um okay Tolerant. with being in full communion and all and it comes to the uh, the the whatever is it bo12 or whatever it is uh where they are required to allow um gay quote marriages happening within their diocese they just have to which switch is, for a moment yeah which is what happened with uh bishop love when yeah. he got uh excommunicated from the episcopal church so yeah mm-hmm. even uh you you mentioned brewer uh mm-hmm it being a conservative, his, his daughter actually is a quote canon within the uh, Gulf Atlantic yeah. diocese and, and then works on the provincial level. That's why I'm always ACNA. doing, yeah, that's why I'm always doing the quotes. <laughs> so do you want to, do you want to talk about, since now we're in, now we're in modern history, we can, yeah. we can talk about two last things and then I think mm-hmm. we'll be, we will have covered a pretty full soap here. So yeah. first is going to be um, the modern battles within the ACNA because although the, we have our happy, uh, Mm-hmm. Happy going away song closing credits mm-hmm. of now the pure conservative Paris paradise that is the ACNA. It's the REC. It, yeah, the yeah, REC. Okay. It's yeah. not as it's not as rosy as it seems in the ACNA, and uh, I experienced a lot of that in the ACNA because yes, there is mean, the, the battle are, over two things, which is yeah. woman's ordination, and then uh, to a lesser degree but more dangerous degree, uh, homosexual uh, tolerance. Um, so I don't think the homosexual tolerance is, is what I would actually mark that second part as. Um, I think it's part of a broader sort of wokeism. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I hesitate on whether or not I should name diocese, but uh, if you know the ACNA, you will uh, one guess you'll know what diocese I'm talking about. But I'm not bound, um, so it's the church for the sake of others. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, <laughs> No, but in all honesty, there are some uh, issues that uh, of, of sort of quote wokeism, uh, where the idea of uh, wokeism is is such a broad thing. But um, going beyond rec- re- you know, racial reconciliation, which I think is a, a good thing to do, um, but going into uh, I, I did a uh, an interview, for instance, with 
Peter Volk, who has been pushing mm-hmm. this sort of um, gay Anglican thing. And yeah. his argument, and I want to present it as as, good, as best as possible, is that he's talking about a celibate uh uh, homosexuality. Yes, where you're not giving into the homosexual desires. However, um, insofar as I understand his position, um, homosexuality as a sexual desire is not intrinsically disordered, and that mm. becomes an issue. Yes, um, all of our sexualities are <laughs> intrinsically disordered. Yes, so um, you don't get to single out homosexuality as saying it's okay. So, like the idea of gay is okay. It's like. No, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you for being gay. I'm like, well, there's something wrong with all of us for being human. Like, not 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 being human is bad, but we have us in nature. And that expresses itself within our sexuality. And homosexuality is a clear example of that. It's just an obvious example of that. Um, so there's that sort of trying to balance or, or sort of tight uh, rope walk, all of that. Uh, so that's been an issue that's been fought with being dealt with. And I think that's actually been a good battle that's been happening where, uh, there's been a lot of pushback against that. Um, the other one that you talked about is women's quote ordination, which ends up being, um, done by some diocese, not all of them. And no one, no diocese within the REC does it, Mm. not even to the diaconate. And it's, and, for, for the listeners to understand, if you're not from an ACNA background, it's very awkward the way in which these lines are drawn. For example, I was from the Gulf Atlantic Diocese, mm-hmm. and the position of, of our bishop um, was, was basically for a while that he, he wasn't going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And then near the end of his episcopacy, uh, he he was more friendly publicly towards woman's ordination, quote ordination, mm-hmm. but he still wouldn't practice it because of uh, certain positions that he had within yeah. the larger province. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll get all the way across the spectrum from woman's ordination warriors to staunchly anti-woman or woman's ordination bishops. It really depends diocese to diocese, uh, how it's going to mm-hmm. be. And that can, cause some issues for priests mm-hmm. and for ordinands as it did for, for, for myself. Uh, and I've heard from multiple other ordinands that there are these issues between, uh, between with their bishops because yeah. it is because Anglican ecclesiology is different from Roman ecclesiology. If the Pope tomorrow said woman's ordination is okay, then that's, that's the, the rule of the church. But uh, in, in the Anglican world, if the, Anglican uh, ACNA House of Bishops came out tomorrow and said uh, women's ordination is okay, then some bishops would tell them to go kick rocks. I mean, this did actually happen when um, yeah. when there was a, uh, this issue was discussed in the uh, ACNA House of Bishops, and they did rule that it was, um, it was not uh, biblical or historical, but they did allow for each bishop to decide on the matter. Um, and and they did canonically have this canonical bound within the ACNA that there will not be any women to the episcopacy, because for uh, certain Anglo-Catholics, this can cause issues with apostolic succession. And that's mm-hmm. a huge, huge issue. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, so, I don't uh, think a woman who a woman who is. Oh, and I do need to point out that that the ACNA does not allow women to be, quote, bishops. Um, yes. At all. Uh, so. At least apostolic succession is maintained. Technically, uh, that's that supposed mission. to be that's supposed to be all of Gafcon, and uh, with the creation of Gafcon, it, in in some that's something we did forget. But it's basically all the 
conservative provinces, which if you're not yeah. familiar with Anglican ecclesiology, province is a country location of, of bishops yeah. who commonly meet together. Um, there, there were certain provinces in the global South, which were conservative, which formed a sort of, uh, we may call it a counter Canterbury, where mm. it's where Anglican identity isn't so intrinsically bound up with the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury that we can't, uh, when he departs from the faith, uh, depart from him and then form um, a differing relations amongst other groups with uh, historic succession from um, from England. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to, oh, there was another part I wanted to add. Um, I forgot it. Oh, well. Okay. So the other, the other thing, and this is where it might get a little spicy is a very important, um, very important thing within uh, American uh, Anglicanism. And then the church of England and Australia is the pastoral provision and um, Anglicanorum Chedibus. So would you, would you give a charitable presentation of, uh, of some of, well, the surrounding that. I'm not going to give a charitable presentation. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. J j try try uh, your hardest. I'll, I, okay. I'll try my hardest. Um, the sheep, never mind. Not sheep still. <laughs> sheep, <laughs> shepherd stealers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the uh, chair of St. Peter and what's the, uh, the Holy Cross. Our Lady of Washington. And then Walsingham and yeah, all the, all the different groups ones. Uh, so uh, part of the, uh, Anglican realignment is the term that's that's used for it. Uh, uh, the sort of a, a, a group that's sort of um, being developed because of that in reaction to that is uh, something set up by Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, when he was obviously uh, Pope. And it is the uh, the personal ordinariate. And what this is, is it's a group that allows for uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, et cetera, you know, fleeing liberalism within the Anglican communion to uh, be in communion with Rome and keep some of their liturgical traditions and some, uh, 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 but it's not a permanent thing. It's not its own right. It's still within the Latin right. It is a, a temporary sort of thing. Um, it's not meant to be something that's sort of long. It's a transitional phase. Uh, so you can sort of uh, go to a parish uh, and, you know, married men who um, were priests in the Episcopal Church, generally they tend to be able to become um, priests within this ordinariate. So that's been one of the draws for some people. And uh, it, I mean, it does liturgy better than the Novus Ordo, I would I would say, uh, just not as well as the prayer book. Uh, <laughs> Some, some, depending on which prayer book you're talking about. Okay, yeah. It's I mean, better than better the 79. Than, yeah, it's better than right two of the 79, or, or even right one, I guess, because right one, like, butchers the traditional prayer book. But anyway. Um, so anyway, you've got uh, the ordinariate, and uh, just to let every Roman Catholic know, yes, I have heard of the ordinariate. I am not interested. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, as an Anglican uh, hearing that, like, when I would, when I Brithful and uh, whatever mm -hmm. thing was happening in the ACNA or GAFCON or yeah. the larger Anglican Communion, they would say, uh, "You should you should join that uh, ordinariate thing. You could you could still be an Anglican and uh, and and be Roman Catholic. That seems like a really good option for you." And I'm like, "I've heard of the ordinariate, and uh, at least for the time being, I was not interested." Yeah. Uh, I told my brother one time because he used to start that. My brother's Roman Catholic, uh, and he's uh, very trad. Uh, he um. 
he used to like talk about the ordinariate a lot with me. And one time I was just like, John, Anglicanism, we're here, Anglicanism, Lutheranism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or Old Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Muslims, atheists, flying spaghetti monster, ordinary. <laughs> he has not since then. He yeah, there is there is some um because to to understand and kind of kind of in a summary manner yeah. the uh our modern context in the late 20th century context of anglicanism mm -hmm. is that it's a series of uh it's it's a series of solutions to a certain problem. Mm -hmm. And that problem is a uh, liberal tide that has taken hold of, and, and in a sense, we could talk about Roman Catholicism in the same way, within the varying responses to how are we going to uh, keep the church pure in light of the modern world. And uh, Anglican Rome Chedibus and the Ordinariate is one of those solutions that has been come up with, and that has been an option for, for some people who have, uh, who may not have a continuum church for five hours away from them mm -hmm. and have it isn't too comfortable with the future of the acna mm -hmm. this ordinary deal can be a little bit uh attractive to them and yeah. such but yeah, it also don't... there's certain animus amongst obviously amongst father james and a lot of uh, a lot of anglican priests and laymen that mm -hmm. um that the ordinary is a bit of a shepherd stealing project to uh to steal anglicans over into mm -hmm. the into the Roman Church, and it can seem seem that way. Although I don't well, necessarily agree as an ordinary Catholic myself. Oh yeah. Well, and it would be one thing if it was done like the way the Western Rite is done with mm -hmm. uh, within the East. I don't have nearly so much of an animus towards that, and not just because I'm a filthy papist hater. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> um, although I am, but no, no, no. Um, but with the Western Rite, it is its own right, and it is its own spirituality. Like they they um, they are a permanent thing. Whereas my understanding yes. with the ordinary is that it's not a permanent thing. It's really just a transitional thing. So it's it's sort of like trying to entice people with candy and be like, well, in five years, we're going to take this candy away from you. you know, kind of thing. Yeah, it depends. Um, it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, mm -hmm. Depends on how one reads Anglican Norm Shady Boost. Because, I mean, throughout the history of the ordinary, it, it has been read differently. For example, mm -hmm. uh, a good example is in the early ordinary, uh, seminarians and ordinands were accepted under mm -hmm. a certain clause in Anglicanorum Chedibus, but that has been uh, it in the it ten years later. Uh, to, it's been fourteen years since uh, Anglicanorum Chedibus that has been uh, taken and applied in a different sense, where uh, it's basically strictly unless you've been a, a priest and coming with a community, then it's likely not going to happen. So mm -hmm. it's it there there is um, it's still a bit up in the air. I mean, it's been pretty well established in the last 14 years, but the, the future of the ordinary, I don't think me, my reading of it, of, of how it's going with uh, relationships between uh, Rome and the ordinary mm -hmm. is that it's going nowhere and that it's going to be a permanent, a permanent force within the uh, Latin right. But you, you could be right. You could be entirely right that it's just more of a transitional into a um, mm -hmm. uh, more general vanilla novus ordo context mm -hmm. which i'd be very sad about yeah i i mean it, it is what it is and um we have a friend uh john fisher 2.0 who and i agree with him like uh like the the way they do the um uh the liturgy within the ordinary is 
much better than the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just sort of, uh, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying this, but he does say something to the effect of like, you know, this is what uh, Vatican II should have been kind of thing. Yes. Um, I, although- I, I agree with that sentiment because it, it basically um, my, my dream in my dream world, it would have just been a English translation with liturgical beauty of the, yeah. of the Trinity Latin mass, which was basically the English missal and the American missile. That's, that's what it was. I mean, except of a few differences in the, um, in only having one version of the liturgical canon and, and other very small mm-hmm. differences. Mm-hmm. That's what the ordinary uh, prayer book is. So uh, that's about, I think all, do you have anything else you would like to cover or say? Um, shameless plug, I guess. Uh, check me out on barely Protestant uh, YouTube. Uh, I, there's a Facebook page that just shares memes and um, please do not, uh, maybe uh, let's see please understand that i get a lot of messages from people on facebook that is not the best way to to contact me <laughs> i guess unless you're me then you get uh then you get a free pass and he answers all well, my uh messages no, no, you do it through another thing so that oh yeah because i do it through your personal page oh no not through the personal page no through other media oh yes other yeah. other mediums yes yes which we will not speak um, of yes so please, I, like, I appreciate, like, I, I maybe I'm sounding like a prima donna or something. I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I, I felt like I had to say that because it does get very frustrating when I get like so, like, a lot of messages from, like, on my personal, like, profile pages and stuff like that. Um. Anyway, yeah. Okay, so I, I feel like about, I made myself look really bad now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's about all we have. Um, don't forget. Uh, you know where to find me. Um, I'm sure I'll have my link tree in the in the comments below. You you know all the stuff. I've already been streaming now for four hours, so I don't really feel like going through all the links. But uh, you know what to do, guys. And I will talk to you guys. Um, I think I might have something set up for tomorrow. I don't remember. It's really late here, and my brain's not working too well. So uh, God bless. Mm-hmm.